0: excited to share with you this morning. We are in a sermon series called Emotions, and uh, Pastor Terry did a great job uh, last Sunday sharing with us that emotions in and themselves is not the problem. In fact, God wired you to experience and to express emotions, which we'll get to here in just a second. And um, this this series, I think, is so very practical because there's some incredible commands that are not really possible unless we Unless we process through what we feel in the correct way, in the way that God designed, which I hope to share with us here in a little bit. But before we get started, I want to share with you a story. In this story, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, okay? Imagine you're in the airport. On your way to your gate, you see someone selling some Girl Scout cookies. You go and grab your, the best box that's there, right, the purple one, the Coconut Delights, all right, also known as Samoas. All right, if you, it's the best one that they have. So you go and grab grab yourself a box, go to your gate, and wait for your flight. As you're waiting, an older gentleman comes and sits down right next to you. Now, there's other open seats available, but he, sit, he decides to sit down next to you. Now, being the good Christian person that you are, you're not going to allow yourself to feel like your space is being invaded. He's like, you know what, it's going to be long-suffering here, you know. I don't know why he's sitting next to me, but hey, you do you. Your stomach starts to grumble. You're like, oh, my box of cookies. So you reach down to grab your box. And as you're going down, you feel his eyes watching what you're doing. You grab the box. You bring it up to your lap. You start to open it. You see the, uh, the cellophane. You start to open the cellophane. You pull out the plastic tray that's holding all the coconut goodness. And the entire time, his eyes have not left your hands. Now, you're not watching him. You're kind of just seeing this in the peripherals. Okay, now you're thinking you're a little weirded out by this, being the good Christian person that you are. You say, you know what? He's probably hungry. He's probably, these, he probably understands that these are the best Girl Scout cookies. He probably just wants one. Okay, he, probably, he probably is hoping, dying, that I would ask him if he would like one. So, as you have the tray in your lap, you're kind of putting the words together about what you're going to do and then finally addressing this person say, hey, would you like to have a cookie? But before you could do that, you see a hand come across your face and pinch one of them and pull it back toward his face. Now you're looking at him and he doesn't say a word to you, but eats your cookie. You're flabbergasted. Being the good Christian person that you are, you're not going to let him have it. You're going to say, you know what? Yeah, I mean, you're not going to let him have it. That's what I mean. You're going to let him have the cookie. You say, you know what? Maybe he grew up without manners. Maybe he's this. Maybe he's that. You're rationalizing the situation. Kind of just make sense of it. But regardless, you're just not going to lash out. You grab yourself a cookie. And as soon as you grab one, he grabs another. And this goes on until there is one cookie left and you cannot believe what has just transpired in these past few moments and you're thinking surely he's not going to take whoop he takes the last cookie now this is it you've had it you've had it up to here He's like i'm going to say something you turn to him and then he does something unexpected he takes the cookie breaks it in half offers you half of the cookie of course you of course i'm going to take it it's my cookie he eats his half gathers his things, bows to you, and walks away. Doesn't say a word. What do you think of a person like this? What are some words you would use to describe a person like this? You know, invasive, impolite. Maybe some other words, I don't know. You just cannot believe what just happened. You cannot wait to get home to tell your family about this big weirdo that just sat down next to you and ate all your cookies. Now, you hear over the intercom that your flight is ready to board. You get in line, and as you're in line, you reach into your bag to pull out your boarding pass. As you reach in there, you fill a box. Mm -hmm. You pull out that box. It's a purple box. A box of Coconut Delight Samoa Girl Scout cookies. Unopened. You're thinking, wait a minute. How is this unopened? We just ate my whole (gasps) edit. Just hit you like a bag of hammers. The entire time, you were sharing his box of Girl Scout cookies. (laughs) And he just let you. (laughs) Now, you might have been experiencing some very strong emotions in that moment. And I commend you for not lashing out. But in a moment, those heightened emotions and assumptions you made about this individual changed completely. When truth was revealed. So, so important. God designed you to be emotional. Emotions aren't bad. but How we process through them, we're going to be held accountable to it. And I want you to see it. My hope is that we give us we get some insight this morning about how to process through what we feel. My hope is to give you a few things to consider to help us thoughtfully respond to what we feel, as opposed to simply react without thought or conviction. Now, something we need to make very clear right off the bat is that emotions in and of themselves are not wrong. Like I said, Pastor Terry did a great job last week explaining that, saying that God designed you to experience and express emotions, that it's a vital part to how we connect with God and to one another. So this will not be a message about your needing to shove emotion down. We need to recognize what emotion is for. We need to recognize what emotion is. It's a prompt, which I hope we'll see in a second. This will not be a message about your needing to become some emotionless Vulcan in order to live worthy as a believer. So please do not entertain that thought. Rather, this message will be focused on how to not be ruled by your emotion. Why is this important? Because when our emotions are allowed to sit in the place of authority in our lives, we can get into some real trouble. When the emotions cause us to make assumptions that we deem to be the truth, we can get to some real trouble. You know what assumption is? Assumption is the lowest form of intel. If you feel a particular, a particular kind of way because of a particular situation, and as a result of those feelings, you are drawn to make conclusions without having all the information, that's an assumption. And it is the lowest form of intel. How come? Because there's no truth in emotions. Emotions do not tell you the truth. They only tell you what you feel. And what we feel cannot be the objective authority for truth. cannot be the qualifier for what is true. Emotions are subjective to personal perceptions, experiences, and beliefs. Emotions may help us express what someone truly feels, but they do not always reflect objective truth. And I think we can agree on that, even in the heat of emotion. Listen, if we make emotions our starting point for what we consider to be the truth, inevitably that approach is going to cloud our judgment, It's going to cause us to perceive things differently than they actually are. This happens all the time, and I hope, that, I hope to show you how, how easily it can happen in just a little bit. If you have your Bibles, open with me to the book of Philippians. We just went through this book, but I didn't get a chance to talk about it, so here's my chance. Philippians chapter 4, we're going to spend most of our time there. As you guys are turning there, I want to show you something. I hope to be a visual tool for us as we're going through this passage, and as you are prompted in life, to process through what you feel okay we're going to call this the heart train now i'm going to write on the board here but it's going to be up on the screens as well because i know every time i use this board some eyes are getting nothing but a glare from the light and so i apologize if that's you uh it'll be both here on the board and on the screen all right this we're going to call this our uh, our heart train Solomon says, guard above, no, he says, above all else, guard your heart, for it determines the course of your life. This is your heart train. Where is it going? How is it getting there? This is really important. Your heart is composed of three parts. Okay, we're going to start with the precious cargo. The innermost, invisible, intangible part of who you are, faith. This is the precious cargo. It's vitally important. This is everything that you believe. Now, understand, this can be built out a whole lot more in depth than what we're going to cover this morning. But I'm just going to give you the basics. So we And I think the basics will suffice in helping us understand what we're going to read here in just a second. Okay, this is the innermost, the center of the innermost, invisible, intangible part of who you are. All right, this is the precious cargo. What makes up what's in here? What, what is your faith composed of? Now, would say it comes from one of two places. Both of them are, made, are solidified in the heart. It can either come from things that are true, facts, or the things that we feel. The things that we feel that are true. All three are in there. But I believe there is a proper order as to how this, is a st- how this makes up the content of your heart. Okay, I'm going to try to go through this quickly. Okay, what are facts? Okay, we, again, this can be built out quite a bit, but let's just get down to uh, sim- uh, simplicity. Okay, what are facts? These are the things that are known. How do you come to the process to, to discover whether something is deemed to be true Scientifically or historically or by going through eyewitnesses. You know, we don't have blind faith. This is really important. The reason why I believe this is a proper order is because God is a God of intellect. And he made you in his image. Therefore, you have a value for what is true. This is really important. This is one aspect. The other aspect aspect is things that you feel. Both can contribute here, but I think there is a proper order. What are the things that we feel? This is our emotions. The reason why the order is so important, because God is a God of intellect, that means he made you a creature of reason. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says, be ready always to give a reason for the hope that is in you. You know where it says that? 1 Peter 3:15. That is the motto of our youth ministry. Be ready always to give an answer for the hope that is in you with gentleness and respect. Be ready always to give a reason for your belief. You know, you don't have blind faith. We don't have blind faith. God did not call on you to have blind faith. This is very important. Why? Because you can believe whatever you want. I can say, I believe the moon is made out of cheese. All that dust stuff, Parmesan. I can believe whatever I want, but unless my belief is sourced in reality, it doesn't have very much weight. It doesn't have any value. Here's the problem. If this is our starting point, we're still going to progress. It's still going to contribute to what we consider to be truth. Well, I'm angry. If this is our starting point, that's all that we know. I'm angry. I'm angry because of this reason. Because of this person. Therefore, this reason is bad. Okay, and that's my belief system. We will we get to examples here in just a second. This cannot be our starting point. Emotions have its place, but notice it's at the end here. Now, I know trains don't have cabooses anymore. But anybody know what used to be inside of a caboose in old-time trains? It used to be an office, and inside the office was a guy named a guy uh, called the flagman. Okay? What did the flagman do? The flagman would communicate with the guy who is in charge. he communicate with the, with the conductor, the guy who's driving the train. Well, what would he say? He would be watching what's going on here. He's watching the precious cargo. If there's anything going wrong, he offers the alert. And that's what feelings are. Emotions are the check engine light of your heart. Now, what does a check engine light do? It doesn't tell you what to do. It only tells you there's something wrong. When the check engine light comes on in your car, it doesn't say, "Here's what you need to do about this." No, you need to go take it in to tell you. They'll tell you what to do about it. It only tells you, "Hey, something is requiring your attention." What does the flagman do? He communicates with the, with the conductor. Here's what's going on, and the instruction comes from him. The instruction comes from what is true. Well, who's the authority of truth in our life? Is it our experiences? Is it our personal perceptions? Is there emotions? Who's the authority of truth in our life? God the Father. You know, the only way you can know anything about the living words is by what's found in the written word. The authority of truth is the Lord. This is important. All right, I've spent enough time on this. Let's look there in Philippians chapter 4. See how we all put this together. You see, this is important because Paul is going to give you instructions in three areas, three attitude adjustments in this passage of Scripture. How can we even get there when emotions are running high? Okay, this is really important because, for instance, when somebody tells you you're ugly? Someone says, you're ugly. I don't like you. Okay, is that truth? That may be, that may be, the truth of, that may be their truth, but is it the truth? If someone tells you ugly, what are you gonna do? You're gonna feel bad. Okay? So what is the what is the to do here? Okay? Emotions, if we recognize them for what they are, they are prompts. They are prompts to do what? They are prompts to respond. Not react. Very big difference. It is a call to respond in light of truth. Someone says you're ugly. I don't like that. Makes me feel bad. Okay, well then how do I respond? Return to truth. What does the Bible say about me? The Bible says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are made in my image. The Bible says Man looks at the outward appearance. I look at the heart. And my heart, your heart belongs to me. You're beautiful. You're handsome. Understand what I'm saying? Now, I know what is true based on the authority. And that changes what I believe about myself. That may even change how I feel about myself. That may cause me to respond instead of react to this person who may not know any better. A couple things to consider. If it's an unbeliever, how can you expect someone of the world to behave in a godly manner? If it's a believer, what do we have? Go back to truth. What does truth say? Matthew 18. Go to your, if your brother offends you, go to them. Matthew 18, one-on-one. And what? Point out the offense. If he hears you, you've gained your brother back. That's what the truth says. What if if he doesn't listen? Well, there's three other steps in that passage. Go read it. Go obey and trust God's word. This is it. This is the thing. You got to trust truth. Keep that in mind as we hear this impractical passage. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse number 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus, through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren. Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, whatever things are of, uh, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. Really important passage when it comes to stewarding what we feel all right let's break down this passage room now a little bit more see what's being said here remember in our recent study last month through the book of uh, philippians we saw that paul was writing this letter to the church in philippi where was he writing this from prison he was not in a place where it would make sense to rejoice And yet he's not offering instruction that he's not doing himself. How do we know that? Verse number 9. Verse number 9 says, The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. He's not going to give them instruction that's impractical, that he's not already living out himself. The first thing we saw there is rejoice. I'm rejoicing in prison. What is he doing? What does he mean by that? How can you rejoice in prison? I'm telling you, he's returning the truth. How do we know what he, what he means? Well, what does he mean? He says, "Rejoice in the Lord always." Again, I will say, rejoice. Does that mean that he was happy? Was Paul happy to be in jail? Is there a difference between joy and happiness? What does it mean to rejoice anyway? Well, the biblical use of the word rejoice is closely related to happiness and gladness, but it is more a state of being rather than an expressed emotion. It is a result of choice. It involves deciding. It involves choosing. There's a decision being made here to respond to what is true and not just react with what is felt. Here's what the word means. It is defined as an attitude of gladness and well-being. Interestingly, the Hebrew use of the word always involved the experience, or uh, always involved uh, the the experience of deliverance, or when actively anticipating salvation from God, even before it came. Paul's instruction was to rejoice in the Lord. Christ is the one in whom the attitude of rejoicing was to take place. When? before we say, well, that's just easier said than done, remember the proper order here. Now, I don't know the exact emotions of Paul while he was in prison. I don't know if it was anger. Let's just say it was. What does the Bible say about anger? Let vengeance be mine. I will repay. A lot of peace to say, hmm, there's some evil done to me. I'm glad I'm not the one that has to handle that. What if it's sadness, absolute total depression? What does the Bible say about that? God is near the brokenhearted. What if it's fear? What if fear fear was the emotion that he was experiencing? Now, the Bible says a whole lot about fear, which we'll get to in just a second. The point is, while in prison, Paul's use of the word rejoice was appropriate. It was not an impractical instruction. Does that mean he was always happy? No, because joy and happiness are not the same thing. Look, sometimes the trials and pressures of this life can make it almost impossible to be happy. But Paul was not telling his readers to be happy. There are definitely many circumstances in which Christians cannot be happy, but they can always rejoice in the Lord and have peace in him. The faithfulness of God never stops. The kindness of our Lord never ceases. The mercies of our God are every day. That's the truth. Do you believe it? Listen, he, Paul had every reason to get lost in anger, to be overwhelmed in sadness, to be overcome with fear. But he wasn't. He chose to rejoice. It was not an impractical instruction he was given to the church of Philippi. He had inner joy, even through difficult circumstances like persecution, imprisonment, the threat of death, which were very much against him. Why? Because he knew what was true. That's what I mean by filtering emotions through what is true and not being ruled by them. Truth was the driving train of his heart. So it must be with us. Verse number five. We're going to go through this a little bit quickly. Uh, Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Very interesting passage. In addition to joy, believers are called to be known for gentleness. Not just be gentle. Be known for your gentleness. Well, what does that gentleness mean? It is an attitude of humility, or literally, to bend low. It is a kind and soothing approach. It is quiet and tender in demeanor it's not harsh now when is it most difficult to be gentle when emotions are high when you're dealing with difficult people when you are grappling with difficult circumstances and these emotions are running high it's most difficult when our feelings are in the driver's seat and not what is true when we respond to what we feel instead of react, when we let our emotions do the thinking for us. Truth needs to be in the driver's seat. Now it says, Let your gentleness be known to all men. How can you be known for all for, for how can you be known for anything? By having that be consistent in your life. When you're consistent with something, you get to be known for it. It's calling on us that we must have the pattern of our life must be marked by gentleness, not harshness. Why? Because the Lord is near. Very interesting passage there. What does he mean by this? It means we must be mindful that the Lord's return is imminent. There is a bigger picture involved in the goings-on of your life. And to allow our own unrestrained emotions to become an obstacle of truth, specifically in the life of someone who desperately needs it, is missing the bigger picture. But the only way we can do that consistently is to choose to respond. Take a breath. When you're angry, no one just wakes up mad. Oh, you're talking about, I wake up mad all the time. Okay, if that happens to you, do this. 3, 2, 1, 1, 2, 3, what is really bothering me? Take a breath. Before you react, choose to respond. Instead of making assumptions, let me find out what is true. Let me come back, let me respond, what, What's true? Understand that the way that we react to others will be noticed. You will be known for how you respond or react. So we have a responsibility to let truth win out. All right, verse number six and seven. Uh, Verse uh, six and seven. Be anxious for nothing, but in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Ah, we finally come to the unfair passage. Don't be anxious. We have to be careful about what this passage is telling us to do, rather than what it's telling us not to do. It says, be anxious for nothing. Do not be anxious. Let me ask you, is anxiety an emotion? Some people would say it could be. But how about in the context of this passage? Listen, if it is an emotion alone, that would be inconsistent with how the other words have been used so far. Rejoice is an attitude, verse 4. Gentleness, an attitude, Verse four, verse 5. Anxiety, just an emotion? Or is there a decision being made? Here's the definition. Anxiety is the state of worry, heaviness, or great alarm. It is the experience of pain and toil. It is extreme uneasiness of mind or brooding fear. Brooding fear, also known as dread. Brooding fear involves an exchange of truth. How do we know that? Well, you know what the Bible says about fear? In a word, don't. You know, the Bible has 300 and at least 60, 365 references to the phrase, do not be afraid. Do not fear. Fear not. That's one for each day of the year. Here's some of the more notable ones. We won't go through them, but just understand that these phrases are all through Scripture and should be reminding us as we are exposed to his word, as we are returning to his word, to trust God, to trust God in his sovereignty in your life. We have faith in God, and to trust in his protection and guidance is what this means. I'm afraid. Okay, what's true? God says, don't be afraid. Why not? Let me see. How do you respond to fear? By returning to what is true. You know, real quickly. God asks Job 84 consecutive questions in the moment of doubt in Job's life. In the midst of those questions, he shows them this incredible creature called Leviathan. He says, no, this, this the Leviathan is just, just looking at him. You would be afraid. He said, when he rises, he's telling Job, when he rises, even the mighty are afraid. No man dares stir him up. Who then can stand against me? He's telling Job, I made him. Everyone's afraid of Leviathan. I made him. You think I'm afraid of him? And I love you. I'm on your side, Job. What could possibly be bigger than the one you follow? We admire courage, right? As Pastor Terry reminded us last week. Verse number seven says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. But what is courage? Courage is not the absence of fear, it's being afraid and doing what needs to be done anyway. What's the opposite of courage? Cowardice. We must not be ruled by fear. You want to hear a really interesting passage? Let me rephrase it. This is not interesting. This is a very sobering passage for those who are ruled by fear. Those who the content of their heart is cowardice. Look at Revelation 21, eight. This is but to the cowardly and to the unbelieving and the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. This is the second death. Whoa, some hard words, some hard company to keep. How is cowardice on the same plane of murder? You know, Jesus warned against continued worry. In uh, Matthew 6:25 to33, we won't read it, but why did he have such such impassioned concern over someone who is constantly ruled by worry? Because there's an exchange of truth there. It ultimately eliminates trust in God. Something has to be bigger than him. This was the error of the 10 spies who refused to go into the promised Land, right? What were they afraid of? They are afraid of the giants. Were they exaggerating about the giants? No, they were genuinely fearful of these guys that made them look like grasshoppers. I don't think they were overstating there. They were afraid. But what did they do? Did they return to what is true? No. Caleb and Joshua were trying to help them out and say, no, God said, let's go. We can conquer them. It's not going to be us. I'm putting my trust in the Lord. Let's go. And they did it. They refused to trust God's command to go in and overcome these giants anyway. They made a generation killing decision. You know, everybody over the age of 20 didn't go into the promised land. They wandered around the desert for 40 years. Everybody thinks it took them 40 years to get there. No, they got there almost in two weeks. They didn't go in. The guy said, all right, follow me. For 40 years, I'm oversimplifying what's going on there. But nobody over the age of 20 got to go in. Look it up. Don't be ruled by fear. Why? Because it's contrary to truth. Whenever you feel anything, whenever you experience anything, don't react. Respond. How do you respond? By returning to truth. Verse number eight, and we'll close with this. How do you return to truth? Well, what is truth? Meditate on these things. Brethren, whatever things are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, any, 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 if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. There is the decision being made meditation involves purposeful thinking so what do we do train your heart train it is your heart train but why don't we train our heart to follow the process by which we are to filter our emotions to what is true